Hello, this is Ashley Chase welcoming you to the Mark Driscoll Podcast. For more content from my dad, Pastor Mark, Senior Pastor here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, visit realfaith.com, where you'll find study guides to go along with each sermon series as he preaches verse by verse through books of the Bible, daily devotions, free ebooks, and more. Now grab your Bibles and get ready for today's sermon. All right, let me apologize then. This sermon is going to be really hard to hear, okay? This is going to be a little difficult. We're in Genesis 5 and 6. My name is Mark. I've been teaching through books of the Bible for about 25 years, and this week's section of Scripture might be the most difficult and complicated. Uh, the good news is I'm 51 and exhausted, so what could possibly go wrong? And what we find is we're going through the book of Genesis, and as we go through books of the Bible, you hit certain sections that otherwise you probably just wouldn't pick. And this is one of... So we have a Hebrew phone book and then what may be aliens. So that's where we find ourselves in Genesis 5 and 6. We'll get there in a moment. But as you're finding your place in God's word, as we go through this great and amazing book of the Bible, it really comes down to something very simple. There is the world and there is the word. And there is this constant collision and conflict between what people think in the world and what God says in the word. And the decision that you and I need to make, especially as we jump in just a moment into Genesis 5 and 6 is, will we allow the world to overrule the word or will we allow God's word to override the world? And what I mean is this, in our world, you're basically taught that we're, we're good people. And even if we do bad things, we have good heart and that we're good and we're evolving and we're getting better. And just give us some time and we're gonna make incredible improvements and we're gonna fix planet earth, especially if we all come together and work together. Now, what the Bible says is just the opposite, that we're bad and getting worse. And that we don't have good hearts, that we have bad hearts. And ultimately what we hear in this world is what's holding us back or restraining us from the achievement of our full potential is things like religion. If we could just get rid of outdated ideas like the Bible, then we could be liberated into the fullness of human capacity and potential. So we need to get rid of things like traditional understandings of sex and marriage and gender and family and human nature and sin. And if we could just get rid of this book, then God's people would ultimately no longer limit the rest of the world from achieving their full potential. So what you're gonna hear today is an absolute collision of ideologies and perspectives about what is wrong in the world and how to make it right. And so we're gonna jump right into Genesis chapter five, and it starts with this, that God is good and we are bad. Now, if you went to university, you were taught that God is bad and we are good. That religion is the root cause of all conflicts and wars and difficulties. If you go on social media platforms, they will throttle anything that echoes what God has said. And the assumption is that God is bad and we are good. But the storyline of the Bible is that God is good and we are bad. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So what he's gonna do, he's gonna summarize for us, Moses is, what we learned in Genesis one and two. When God created man, so we were created by God. He made him in the likeness of God. So God made us like him. Male and female, binary fixed gender categories, he created them. God created marriage for us. He blessed them, the first couple, and named them man or mankind when they were created. So God created us. And when God got done, everything was, it was good. And God made us and he said, we were very good. And then everything went bad and very bad. And then the, the question is, well, is that God's fault or our fault? If it's God's fault, then we're the solution. If it's our fault, then God's the solution. And that sets up what we will learn in the rest of Genesis. But here's the big idea. It tells us that ultimately we are the problem and that God is the solution. That when God finished making the world in us, everything was great. And then he gave us dominion. He sort of handed us the keys to the car. The first thing we did was rolled it over in the ditch and set it on fire. Uh, we just destroyed everything that God made. And so the point is in Genesis 1 and 2, when God gets done, everything's great. By Genesis 3 forward, everything's not great. This is the difference between what God has done and what we have done. So you need to understand that the problem in the world is us. That the biggest problem in your life is you. We live in a world where we think that we have good hearts and we are good people. And that if we all just pulled together and had enough time, that the world would be a good place out of our good hearts because we are good people. And the Bible says, no, actually let's just give people some time and see what they do. 
Let's see what comes out of their good hearts and let's see if they produce good lives. So what you're gonna see next is a genealogy. If you've ever thought, I wish I could see a Hebrew phone book, today's your lucky day. We're gonna look at a genealogy that goes 1,656 years from Adam to Noah. How many of you love studying your family tree or ancestry or genealogy? Uh, for the Hebrew people, this would be their family tree, ancestry, and genealogy. And what it is, God says, okay, you think you're good people. You think you have good hearts. You think if I just let you do what you want and give you some time, that you're gonna make a great world for everyone to live in. I'll just wait patiently for 1,656 years. You go ahead and do what you want and we'll see how that works out. This is what we find in Genesis chapter five, that human progress is external, not eternal. That ultimately evolution teaches us that we're good and getting better. That's true externally, but not internally. So we can send someone to the moon, but we don't love our neighbor. That we can create you know, technology, but we're still not kind to one another. That all of our progress is external, and it's not internal. It's not moral, it's not character. I would say people are more evil and cruel and malicious than they've ever been. And we just use technology to weaponize and bludgeonize one another. So here's what we read, read with me. When Adam had lived, so there's our first father, 130 years he fathered his son. Aren't you glad you didn't start having kids at 130? Can you imagine that? 129, you're like, babe, I feel like it's time. Let's start a family. And all of a sudden you're like, I'm in diapers, they're in diapers, I have no teeth, they have no teeth. I'm eating their food, it's soft. <laughs> you know, it's what a, what a hard start. Uh, father to son in his own likeness. And this is showing that everyone after Adam has a sin nature. God created us good and then Adam and Eve sin and then we're made in their image and likeness. We carry forth a sin nature. Everyone born of Adam and Eve is a sinner, not just by choice and behavior, but by nature goes on after his image and he named him Seth. So there were two sons, Cain and Abel. We looked at last week, Cain killed Abel and then God gives them another son here, Seth. So now there are two lines from this family, the line of Cain, uh, ungodly, and the line of Seth, more godly. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, tons of candles on the cake. And he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he, he died. You're gonna hear this eight times, he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years. He had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he, he died. Doesn't tell us anything. Like, well, was he left-handed or right-handed? He died. Did he have a peanut allergy or not? He died. On the baseball team, did he play in the outfield or the infield? He died. Was he tall or short? He died. What's really interesting is as we hear this, we think, gosh, why don't we know anything about them? Here's the big idea. Most of us just live a rather simple life and when we're gone, not a lot is said about us. I, I know that's a little, oh, you spanked my inner child, uh, but that's just the way that it is. There used to be something called a newspaper before we had the internet. And uh, we used to put lies on paper. Now we just put them online, but we used to put, uh, information on paper and we called it a newspaper. And the only time that the average person had their name in the paper was when they were born or when they died, that's it. In the middle, you didn't make it unless you did something terrible <laughs> or got a touchdown. And so otherwise, all we know is you're born and you die. And this is what we know about these people. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enos should live 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan, 815 years, had other sons and daughters. So they're having a lot of kids. Just imagine how big your family would be if you lived 800 years. Imagine how tired your wife would be if she was giving birth to children for 700 years. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. This is the only theme. If you're hoping to be encouraged, come back. <laughs> Probably not your day. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalo, which is just fun to say. And Kenan lived after he fathered Mahala, 840 years, he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and then he, he died. When Mahalo had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalo lived after he fathered Jared, 830 years, he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalo were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. 
Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 960 years and then he died. How many of you are like, this is boring. Welcome to life. <laughs> it's not very exciting. Welcome to life. Now here's what's curious. This one's different. This is like that uh, Sesame Street special, which kid isn't like the other, which one doesn't belong? Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch, what's it say? He walked with God. Well, that's different. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. It doesn't say Enoch died. It says Enoch, what? He walked with God and then he was gone. He was no more for God took him. Uh, when Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years, had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Methuselah, 969 years, and he died. Oldest guy mentioned named in the Bible. Aren't you glad you don't live 969 years? Like, all right, this is the 400th presidential election. I'm so sick of this. I can't wait till I'm 800 and I finally get to retire. <laughs> oh. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, called his name Noah. The whole point is to get from Adam to Noah, saying out of the ground that the Lord God is cursed, this one shall bring us relief or comfort from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived and he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died after Noah was 500 years old. Now we're gonna meet his sons who help him build the ark. And spoiler alert, but Noah and his wife are gonna replace Adam and Eve and their children will replace Adam and Eve's children. Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So what we're looking at here is 1,656 years of human genealogy. The first most obvious thing I will point out is that they traced the family line through the father. He just told us in 5.1 that he named the race mankind. It's literally in the Hebrew, it's Adam. That Adam was first, he's the head of the human family. And then every generation, the man is to be the loving, serving, humble, generous head of the family. That the families in Genesis are traced patriarchal through the father's line. And throughout the history of the world, this is almost always the case. Every once in a while, a feminist scholar will come along and try and find some small group of tribal people that were matriarchal and say there was an exception. And the truth is, human history is patriarchal. We're gonna talk about this probably uh, Wednesday night at Real Men, what it means to love and to lead your family. But here's a couple of things I wanna point out from the genealogy. And how many of you found it boring? How many of you, when you had your Bible reading plan, you're like, I just skipped it, <laughs> right? Um, and the point is this, that everything in the Bible is there for a reason. God doesn't waste anything. And he wants us to look at our history and say, okay, what family do I come from? And to ask, did everyone just die or did anyone walk with God? And how about me? Is it just gonna say about me that I just died or is it gonna be said that I walked with God? And this is the comparison and contrast. You either die or you walk with God. Now here's what we do learn. God knows everyone by name. Now in the world we live in, most people don't know our name. Most places you go, nobody says your name. If you're in the store and you hear your name, like, oh, yeah, somebody knows I'm here. God knows your name. The Bible says that God calls you by name. That when he calls you from your grave, as he did Lazarus, he will call you by name. Now, people may not know you, but God knows you. People may not know you by name or call you by name, but God knows you by name and he calls you by name. In addition, everyone dies because everyone is a, a sinner. That's the big idea. Sin causes death. Once we sin against God and separate from God, we replace life with God for death. And the result is it shows that every generation dies because everyone is a sinner. And this is important to realize because the truth is the two most important things we learn about God is who he is and who we are. He told us in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, and here we realize that we're all sinners. So there is a good God who made us and we've sinned against him. Until we get those two pieces of the puzzle in place, we're not ready to receive Jesus as the God who comes down to forgive sin. 
All of this is to set up the storyline of the Bible for Jesus. In addition, the decisions that you and I make, they last for generations. See, the decisions that were made by previous generations have affected your life, positive and negatively. The same is true with me. The decisions that you and I are making are going to have generational implications, good or bad. So my ancestors uh, were in County Cork, Southern Ireland, famine hit. They decided to get on a coffin ship and come to the United States of America. They ended up settling in the Midwest as potato farmers. That's where I was born. I didn't decide where I was born. Some family members generations prior made a decision and they didn't know that I was going to be born, but they were determining where I would be born. And then my parents, when I was little, they moved to the West Coast. And then with our five children, uh, six, seven years ago, we moved to Arizona. Now I'm prophesying grandkids, but when my grandkids come or our grandkids come or their kids come, they're gonna be born where? Arizona, not Ireland. Because generations make decisions, good or bad. And you and I could be very frustrated because previous generations made decisions about divorce or adultery or alcoholism or debt. And that's affected us. But then we've got to ask, what decisions am I making and what legacy will I be leaving? And the result is here too, every generation it says, lives and dies. And here's what we do, we put far too much pressure on individuals and generations. We look at our kids, we're like, you're gonna change the world. And they're like, I can't even change my pants. Like, it's a lot of pressure. And we put all this pressure when you're in high school, like, well, what are you gonna do when you grow up? They're like, I don't know. I'm 17, I don't know what I'm supposed to choose for a career path and a college and how my life is going to change the world. It's a ton of pressure. And we put whole generations under this pressure to change the world. We do this in church. Every generation, we name it. So for me, we were Gen X and I was a young pastor back when I had bangs and hope. It was a long time ago. Um, they called us Generation X and they got all the Gen X pastors and they put us up on stage in conferences and how are you gonna fix the church and change the world? The truth is we had no idea what we were talking about. You know how I know? Nothing changed. Every generation rise. Okay, you guys are gonna do it. We put all this pressure on youth groups. You're the Elisha generation. You're the Joshua generation. <laughs> You're just the next generation. And the point is this, we put so much pressure on the next generation to fix and save the world. And the assumption is that you're gonna do better. You're gonna fix it. What we see here is one generation, they are born sinners, they live in sin, they die as sinners. In the middle, they eat snacks and have babies. It's pretty common to live a typical life. And that's not a bad thing. God didn't intend for you and I to save the planet, lift the curse, forgive sin, and fix the human problem. We have a God-sized problem. So we need God to come and invest and we can't make this solution ourselves. And the point is, it's not our sons, but it's the son of God who's gonna forgive sin and lift the curse. So in this, there is one guy who's an outlier. His name was Enoch. Everybody died and says he walked with God and then he was no more because God took him home. Now he dies at a relatively young age. Here's the big idea. It doesn't matter how long your life is, it matters whether or not your life was lived walking with God. You could live to be 110, but if you don't walk with God, that last step is not gonna be a good one. You could live 30 years, but if you walk with God, that last step is a great one. It says that Enoch was no more. And here's the big idea. Enoch avoided death because he walked with God. The point is this, everyone dies and the only way to overcome death is to walk with God. And this is the language of friendship. It's said of Adam and Eve back in Genesis that they would walk with God in the garden. They walked with God until they sinned against God and that's when they walked away from God. So let me say this, if you've walked away from God and as sinners, we all have, the key is not that we walk toward God, but that God walks toward us. And then he takes our hand and he walks with us. The language here is like a father and a child. When our kids were really little, one of my favorite things as a dad, we got five kids. One of my favorite things is to go for family walks. I still love it. I still go for walks all the time and hold Grace's hand. It's one of my favorite things. When our kids were really little, as soon as the clouds would lift and the sun would come out, we lived in a dark um, sort of dreary climate. Hey, who wants to go for a walk? My kids wanna get out. 
what I would do is I would, I would hold their hand. And my kids were safe as long as they held their father's hand. The point is this, your life, it's filled with pains, problems, and perils. This is a dangerous world. And the only way to make it through it is to hold your father's hand and to just walk with him and stay close to him. This is the Bible's language of relationship. And when it comes to our walk with God, and that's what Christianity is, it's a walk with God, that ultimately, sometimes we put a lot of pressure on people. What's your destiny? What's your future? What's your life plan? And sometimes the real answer is, well, what's your next step? Sometimes you don't see the future, but you see the Father, and you just need to take the next step in relation with Him. Some of you need a Bible. Some of you need to meet some Christian friends. Some of you need to stop some bad behaviors. Some of you uh, need to go meet with a counselor. Some of you need to just start praying and talking to God before you make your big decisions. The question is, what's your next step? Is it engagement? Is it marriage? Is it time to have a kid? Is it time to start a company? Is it time to find a job? Just find your next step. And what I tend to find is people are so worried about where they're going and we need to be more worried about who we're going with. If you're, if you're walking with someone other than the Lord and you're following their leadership, you're not going to have a good destiny. But if you walk with the Lord, he'll get you into the place that he intends for you. Now, there are only two people in the Bible in the Old Testament that don't die. They just go home to be with the Lord. The first is Enoch. The second coming up is gonna be a guy named Elijah. Enoch gets taken, God sends a chariot for Elijah. So Enoch goes coach and Elijah goes first class, okay? (laughs) So all the way back to heaven, there are two different categorizations for your ticket, okay? So what happens is they don't die, they just go to heaven. So just get your brain around this. Right now, there are at least three people in the unseen realm in heaven that have a body, Enoch, Elijah, and Jesus. And so what happens is at the last book of the Bible, Revelation, this is the first book of the Bible, Genesis, before the end of the world, before judgment, before the resurrection of the dead, there are two witnesses, preachers, prophets, evangelists sent out into the world to preach and they are taken and they are murdered and martyred. Some people think that that might be Enoch and Elijah. That God spared them and he's gonna send them back for death in the end, we'll wait and see. Now it does say about uh, Enoch, two things in the New Testament. Jude, verses 14 and 15, and Jude is written by Jesus' stepbrother, his, uh, yeah, his step or his half-brother, uh, Jude, says Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. So Enoch didn't just walk with God, he preached for God. The key is not just to walk with God, but to talk about God. We walk with God for our relationship with God. We talk about God, inviting others into relationship with God. He prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of the holy ones. Talking about angels. He is talking, so what's crazy is Enoch is before the first coming of Jesus and he is prophesying about the second coming of Jesus. When you walk with God, God will reveal some supernatural, incredible things to you. Right, at this point, Jesus hasn't come the first time and he is saying that when he comes the second time, he's gonna come with 10,000 angels. Uh, to execute judgment on all and to convict the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude tells us that Enoch was the first prophet in the history of the world. Now, God spoke creation into existence, so tech, and then God speaks. So up until this point in Genesis, the only person who's spoken is God. Now God's not gonna just speak to people, he's gonna speak through Enoch. This is the beginning of prophets who give us scripture and they speak on behalf of God with authority. Enoch begins that. In addition, we read in Hebrews 11, faith, by faith, Enoch. How did Enoch live? By faith. He lived in the faith that the Lord was coming. You and I are in the middle. We're in the time between the times. Enoch had to have faith that Jesus would come the first time, live without sin, die and rise, and that Jesus would come the second time with 10,000 holy ones to judge the living and the dead. You and I have already seen Jesus come, live, die, rise the first time. We're in the time between the times. We're awaiting the second coming of Jesus. And what he says is that he is coming. 
And what he says is by faith, Enoch was taken. Enoch trusted in Jesus. Let me say this. Enoch knew very little about Jesus, but he trusted it very much. You and I tend to sometimes be the opposite. We know a lot, but we trust a little. The key is not necessarily how much you know, that can be good, but how much you trust in what you know about Jesus. He didn't have the Bible, but we do. He hadn't seen Jesus born of Mary and crucified on a cross and risen from the dead, but by faith, he believed that it was coming. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because he walked with God. Let me say this, your eternal life doesn't begin the day you die. It begins the day you place your faith in the Lord. And then you live your life walking with God and then death is a transition. It's just another step. It's the great step into the next season. And it says he was taken as was commanded as having pleased God. Let me say this, it tells us here in Genesis 5, the death comes for everyone except for one. The one who walks with God overcomes death, literally steps over death. I had a, a hospital or had a, a bedside visit here recently. There was a, there's a man in our, our church family. He's an older godly man. He's had a number of surgeries and poor health and he's been watching online. He's been unable to join us for a year or two. Um, and if he's joining us online, we love you. We're praying for you. He told his wife, he said, I'm gonna die soon. Uh, get Pastor Mark, I want him to come visit. So Grace and I went to his bed at his home and prayed with his wife who's lovely and talked with him. And I, I asked him, I said, do you know what happens next? Because guess what, friends? Death comes for us all. And you can have a great life, but if you've not prepared for death, you've not prepared for the most important life, that's the eternal life. And he looked at me, smiled, he said, I think I know, and I got a lot of questions, but I'm looking forward to it. So I gave him some scriptures. To live is Christ, to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To depart and be with the Lord is far better that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can even conceive of what God has planned for those who love him. I told him, just walk with God, sir. And then in the end, you'll close your eyes and then you will open them. And the one you've been walking with by faith, you'll start walking with by sight. Amen. To live is Christ, to die is gain and far better. Amen. So let me say this. Um, I'm gonna compare and contrast. So here Enoch is saved from judgment. In just a moment, you're gonna meet Noah who's saved through judgment. And when it comes to how God will judge at the end of the world, this is how God judges at the beginning of the world. When God judges at the end of the world, some will ask, well, does God take us out of it and save us from the judgment or does he save us through it? And the answer is, well, with Enoch, he saves him from it. And with Noah, he saves him through it. So God can save you either way. For some of you, God is gonna save you from total devastation. And for some of you, God's gonna save you through total devastation. Those are the comparisons and contrasts of Enoch and Elijah. But the big point of Genesis 5 and the genealogy is this, time fixes nothing. How many of you have gotten older and realized that? When you were a teenager, you're like, I, I've got so much time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a lot of progress. Now you're in your 60s, you're like, rot row. <laughs> what we tend to think is that we're good, we have good hearts, we're good people, just give us time, we're gonna do some great things. The truth is, bad hearts, bad people, don't really do a lot, and then we die. You could take that as discouraging or sobering. And what it means is, the only hope is that you walk with God and that ultimately the good news is that God came as Jesus Christ to walk with us. So our view of human history tends to be like a bike. One generation gets on it, pedals, 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 look at all the progress we're making. Next generation, jump on the bike, pedal, 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 look at all the progress, look at all the progress we're making. The point of Genesis 5 is this, human history is a stationary bike. How many of you know the difference between a bike and a stationary bike? All right, what's the difference? A stationary bike doesn't go anywhere. Human history for sinners apart from God is a stationary bike. 
One, one generation gets on like, we're going to change the world. We're going to lift the curse. We're going to fix everything. It's going to be awesome. Wait till we get our politician in office. Wait until we get our taxes. Wait until we get our infrastructure deal. Wait until we, wait until we get education. Wait until, wait until we get medical breakthroughs. Wait till, wait till, boom, dead. Next. Okay, we were, no, you guys, you guys were terrible. Good thing we're here. Our turn to battle, 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 battle. Die. God waited 1,656 years. There's a pile of dead bodies and one victorious stationary bike. <laughs> the young people are like, I don't think that's true. The old people are like, I know that's true. Okay, so. All right. So now we're going to get into Genesis 6. Okay, how many of you are ready for Genesis 6? I'm not. So I'm glad you are. Genesis 6 is... Probably the most complicated, difficult, brain cramp chapter in the Old Testament. Um, and so I'm gonna try my best. We've had conferences all week, I just flew in. These are all my ways of saying lower your expectations, okay? <laughs> so we're gonna hit a series of questions that come up in Genesis 6. Here's the first one. Who were the sons of God who married the daughters of men? So I'm gonna read it to you, Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land. So people are having people, population is exploding. And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And they took wives, any as they chose. So how many of you, you go, that's kind of weird language. Go back a minute, please. PowerPoint person, thank you. Uh, the, how many of you, the sons of God, you're like, well, who are those guys? It's kind of odd language, right? And then the daughters of man, and they, they got married. So the question is like, who, who are these people? Because here's what we've gone from now. We've gone from forbidden fruit to forbidden females. Seems like these people aren't supposed to be getting married. And if you ask the young men, they'd be like, well, they're hot. And I would say, so is hell, you know? So you gotta, you gotta think this through. You can't, just, you can't just go with it. So here are uh, some options. I'm actually gonna give you uh, four options of what this might mean. So you say, Pastor Mark, why are you giving us four options? Because I'm not sure which one is right. And if you do, well, congratulations, I love your tinfoil hat and I'm proud of your medical marijuana card, okay? So, because these are the verses where all the conspiracy theorists and the ancient aliens people, they really get excited. So if you're with us, welcome. Okay, option one, believing men from Seth's line intermarry unbelieving women from Cain's line. So the first option is that Adam and Eve, first they had Cain and Abel. We looked at the fact that Cain killed Abel. God replaced Abel with the son Seth. Now from, from Adam and Eve, there are two lines. Uh, there is the line of Cain, which is the ungodly line, and the line of Seth, which is the more godly line. And they're saying here that the believing men married the unbelieving women because they were attracted to them. Have you ever seen a Christian guy date or marry a Christian girl, not because she loved the Lord and was a Proverbs 31 woman, but because she was fun? Have you ever seen that? I could tell right now the single guys who have done that, they're not making eye contact. They're, they pretend like they're taking notes in their Bible. That's good. So this may be the beginning of believers marrying unbelievers. Should a believer marry an unbeliever? Dads? No. When you're a young man, you're like, oh, I'm not sure. Ask an older man who's a father with a daughter. It's very clear for him. The answer is no. So this may be the beginning of believers and unbelievers marrying. The second option is the sons of God are fallen divine beings. They're basically like demons trying to marry human women as a counterfeit of Jesus' incarnation. Okay, ready? You may wanna put your fingers in your ears because your mind is about to explode, okay? He told us in Genesis 3.15, God came after Adam and Eve and Satan sinned. And he told Eve in Genesis 3.15 that though they were sinners, a savior was coming through the woman. She would bring forth a male child who would defeat the dragon and forgive sin. It's about Jesus. This is the first promise of the coming of Jesus. 
What's interesting is it mentioned that Jesus would have an earthly mother, but it says nothing about an earthly father. It's a curious omission. Here in Genesis 5, it tells us this guy had this dad, this guy had this dad, this guy had this dad. The only guy that we don't hear about a dad is Jesus, because he's gonna have a heavenly father and an earthly mother. Now, in hearing that, uh, the fallen divine beings, the, here referred to as the sons of God, may have heard, oh, so God is gonna bring forth Christ from a, a, a divine father and a human mother, then we can bring forth the antichrist from a divine being and a human being. And it may be trying to counterfeit what is called the incarnation of Jesus. The incarnation is where God becomes a human being, that someone uh, who is spiritual takes upon physical flesh. We celebrate this every Christmas. And incarnation means incarne or in flesh. How many of you like carne asada? You should, okay, if you love Jesus, you should love carne asada. Because uh, carne means meat and Jesus is God in meat. He's God in flesh. Now the argument where this would be most strongly articulated or defended that the sons of God are divine fallen beings seeking to have some sort of counterfeit Jesus with human women comes from Job 38, four through seven. God says, when I laid the foundation of the earth, so back to Genesis one and two, when God created the heavens and the earth, the morning stars, the morning stars is ancient language for angels. God is up there, we are down here. The stars are between us. So the stars are ancient language for angels saying together. So when God created the heavens and the earth, the angels were worshiping. And who was there? The sons of God shouted for joy. God created, the angels were worshiping another category of divine being spiritual being created, not equal to God. There's only one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. God created human beings and he created divine beings. Some of those divine beings are called here the angels or um, the stars. And there's another category or classification called the sons of God. And it says that they were shouting for joy. They were cheering God's creation. It may have been this group that God spoke to as well in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and God says, now they've become like us knowing good and evil. It may have been God speaking to this group of beings in the unseen realm. So the second option would be, this is a counterfeit of the birth of Jesus. They've figured out how God's gonna bring forth the Christ and they're trying to figure out how to bring forth the Antichrist. Third option, that demonic fallen sons of God appear as human to marry human women. This happens in Genesis 18 and 19, okay? If you come back, and I hope both of you do, um, in Genesis 18 and 19, there's a guy named Abraham and he spends a lot of time with a couple of guys having a conversation and a meal and, and then he realizes they're angels. They're not human beings, they're divine beings who take on human form. This is where Hebrews tells us that some of us have entertained angels unaware. We just thought they were people because they came on assignment and they came undercover appearing as human beings. So that would be here. Um, again, please bring the slide back up. Demonic fallen sons of God appear as human uh, to marry human women. The primary argument against this would be the words of Jesus who says that in the resurrection, people will be like the angels, neither marrying nor given in marriage. But again, what Jesus is talking about there is post-resurrection. This is pre-resurrection, so it may not apply. The fourth option is that demons possess human beings and seek to transfer evil generationally. Are there people in the Bible who are genuine human beings, but they are demonically possessed? Yeah, uh, Jesus' own disciple Judas welcomed Satan into his heart. There are certain people that just welcome demonic, spiritual, supernatural evil into their life and that Satan works through them. There are people today who are demon possessed that have children and they are generationally cursing their family. 
This is where the Bible talks about generational blessing and cursing over and over. One of the great themes of Genesis is generational blessing and cursing. Uh, more than 80 times, Genesis talks about blessing. Well, the converse of that is cursing. And if you're filled with the spirit, you can be a blessing for generations. If you're filled with evil and the demonic, you can be cursing your family for generations. So put the slide back up, please. Either way, so how this happens, it's a bit of a debate, but why this happens, I think is more clear. Every option has the same goal of corrupting the human family line to prevent Jesus coming as savior. God says, there's a problem, I'm sending Jesus as the solution. Satan in the demonic realm says, well, if Jesus is coming through a woman, one way or another, we need to corrupt that family line so that we can stop the coming of Jesus. The point of this is to tell us that God had to do an incredible amount of work to bring Jesus into the world against incredible opposition. The other thing that I would tell you, and you can hold any one of these positions and you may have another one and that's great. We believe in closed-handed issues and open-handed issues. Who are, who are these people? Uh, open hand. What I would say is closed hand is Jesus Christ is the only hope for humanity. And ultimately our only hope is like Enoch to walk with God, okay? And that Satan is always trying to keep people from Jesus. And this is the storyline of the Bible in human history. And there's a lot more going on than you and I would perhaps think or realize. That we look at the world and we forget, as Ephesians says, our war is not against flesh and blood, but powers, principalities, and spirits. For the wars that we see, there's a war behind the wars. For the evil we see, there is an evil one behind the evil that we witness. The point is this, there's a lot more going on, not just in human history, but in your life and in your family than you and I would even see. And here God awakens and opens the possibility of a bigger world, an unseen realm for us all to ponder. The next question is a little, I think, more clear and simple. We're still in Genesis 6.3. What does the 120 years refer to? The Lord said, my spirit, the Holy Spirit shall not abide in man forever. He is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. There are two options here. Uh, one is that God is going to limit human life to restrict evil. That at this point, people are living to be seven, 800, 900 years old. And God looks down and says, evil people living a long time is just going to multiply evil. How many of you are glad that Hitler doesn't have 600 more years left on the clock? How many of you are glad that human traffickers and drug cartels and mob bosses at some point don't get to live like Methuselah to be 969 years old? How many of you with your own bad habits and addictions and foolish decisions, if you got another 500 years, you'd make a total mess of your life? See, sometimes God not only saves us from Satan's sin, death, hell, and the wrath of God, sometimes God saves us from other people, sometimes God saves us from ourselves. People look like, why does God not let us live longer? How many of you don't wanna be here in 800 years? I think it's gonna be a zombie apocalypse if we're still here. I mean, and, and if you are evil and you have hundreds of years to master your evil, you're, you're going to be a liability to, to existence of the human race on planet earth. The point is this, if God, since we sin and die, we're gonna die anyways. So this may be that God shortens the timeline of our life so that we don't end human history. I mean, if we just could master evil, eventually we would literally destruct the entire planet. And it's interesting because many of our blockbuster movies and storylines is simply that, that human beings got to the point where we could destroy the entire planet and eviscerate human life. I think down deep in our hearts, something knows we're capable of that. We're capable of literally ending life as we know it. The first person in the Bible to die at 120 years is actually Moses, the author of Genesis. Option two, God says, everyone's sinning. I'm going to bring judgment through a flood with Noah. You'll meet him in a moment, but I'm going to patiently wait for 120 years. This is God giving everyone an opportunity to repent of sin, to do like Enoch and trust him and walk with him. 
If it is 120 years from pronouncement to judgment, how many of you think that's super patient? Like if somebody breaks into your home and you pull a gun, you're like, look, you stop or in 120 years, I'm gonna shoot you. That's, super, that's a lot of opportunity. Some people look at God and they'll be like, how could God be so cruel? God is so patient. God is so loving. God is so gracious. God is so kind. It says twice in the New Testament regarding this time period, if he did not spare the ancient world, 2 Peter 5 and 9, but preserve Noah, he's coming up next, a herald of righteousness. So if this is the case, then for 120 years, Noah is trying to be Billy Graham. For 120 years, he's like, repent of your sin, receive God as savior, repent of sin. And how many people take him up on that? Zero people except for his wife and kids. Imagine for 120 years, you come to church every week. It's you, your mom, your siblings and their spouses, that's it. There is no guest services. There is no plan your visit. There is no first time visitor bag. There is no check your kids into kids ministry. It's just us. There's not one other camel in the parking lot. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, a preacher with seven others, that's just his family, eight people. That's it on the whole earth. When he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. What he's saying is this, just tell everybody about Jesus and let Jesus sort out who's saved and who's lost. But at the end of the day, don't overlook your family. Your family is your first priority. In addition, it says this in 1 Peter 3.20, God's, what's the word? Patience. That may be the 120 years waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through water. People look at the ark and they're like, how did he build that? If you had 120 years and you went to work every day with your sons, you could get something done. So we've looked at two of the three most complicated questions. We've saved the brain cramp for last. Who are the Nephilim? How many of you are already lost? You're like, I've been lost for 15 minutes. How many of you are like, I'm not lost. Well, we're about to lose you. Okay, here we go. Genesis 6, 4, the Nephilim. Huh? What? How, who? See, in the, all the crazy non-Christian television shows like Ancient Aliens and stuff, this is the only verse they ever quote. The Nephilim. You gotta say it like that. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God, oh, we're back to these guys. Are these their kids? When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. These were the mighty men were of old men of renown. The word Nephilim only appears twice in the Bible here. And this is pre-flood. Numbers 13, 33 is post-flood. The spies go into the land. They say, we saw the Nephilim the sons of Enoch, who come from the Nephilim and seem to ourselves, we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seem to them. So the spies go in the land, they're like, those guys are huge. This is like Goliath. You're like, compared to them, we're grasshopper. That's what it's gonna take to crush us. So the question is, who are the Nephilim? So I'm gonna give you some options. Uh, number one, different people groups with the same name. So there was a people group of the Nephilim in Genesis 6, a people group of the Nephilim in Numbers 13. What happened in the middle? A flood. So unless these are the grandparents of Michael Phelps, nobody made it, okay? They didn't swim for it. So it would be a same human group, um, excuse me, different human groups with the same name. So it may be that different people have the same name as a group. That this group lived, died in the flood, and then this group took that name. Second option is the same demons are in people before the flood and after the flood. And that Nephilim refers to people who live by demonic power. And the people may be different, but the demons are the same. This is possible. The third option is that the um, sons of God and the daughters of men 
was actually divine beings and human beings having a hybrid child that is a counterfeit of the incarnation of Jesus and those people survived the flood. The counterfeit incarnation from the children of the divine sons of God and the human daughters of men who survived the flood as God and Satan both rescued their lines. God says in 120 years, I'm gonna flood the earth, but I'm gonna spare Noah and his family. Satan says, I'm gonna preserve my family too. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where God said that there would be two seed offspring or lines, one for Satan, one for God. So in every generation, you're gonna see throughout Genesis, there are people who are on God's team and people who are on Satan's team. And God is trying to get his team to, fl to flourish and Satan's trying to get his team to flourish and God's trying to preserve the life of his people and Satan's trying to preserve the life of his people. That through the flood, God and Satan, both of them may found a way to rescue their line, their seed, their offspring, their people. Now, what's interesting is there is an ancient story from this same time period outside of the Bible, and I'm a Bible guy, so I'm not saying that anything is equal to the Bible, but it is curious, something called the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh is a collection of stories regarding a Mesopotamian hero and the fifth king of ancient Uruk, which is probably the oldest place or civilization in what we now know as Iraq. Most scholars accept that this was in fact a historical person who did live. But around them, there were a lot of stories about supernatural power and strength and wisdom and, and, and supernatural uh, phenomena. And it was said that they were the son of the goddess Ninsum and the man Lugalbanda, that this was a demigod, two thirds God, one third human. And what's interesting, they lived at the same time as the story of the Mesopotamian flood. So around that same time, it says there was someone who was part divine, part human, counterfeit Jesus, and there was a flood. I'm not saying that it's corollary, but it is curious. How many of you are glad you don't have my job today? <laughs> so let's talk about something that maybe you think you're a little more familiar with. All of this is to set up the story for Noah. Genesis 6, five through nine. Most people have heard the story of Noah, but they don't know it. You don't know Noah. The Lord saw, so God looks at all of human history. He's waited 1,656 years. Maybe he's waited an additional 120 years. He sent Enoch out to preach. Then he sent Noah out to preach. But the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thought of his heart was only continually evil. I'm a good person. No, you're not. Well, I have a good heart. No, you don't. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. We tend to think that sin is breaking God's laws, which it is, but it's also breaking God's heart. How many of you are a parent? What would it take for you to look and say, I wish that kid was never born? They would have to be a horrific, demonic, satanic human being for a parent to look at a child and say, I, 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 just, I just wish I wouldn't have brought them forth. God looks at humanity because he's good and we're bad. And he has grief at our behavior. See, God's heart is broken by our heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. I'm gonna get rid of everybody. I can't let this keep going. This is not evolution, this is devolution. People are not getting better, they're getting worse. If I don't intervene, they're gonna, everyone is gonna kill everyone else. There'll be no one left. I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry or grieved that I made them. But here's good news. Who? Noah found favor, first appearance in your Bible of the Hebrew word for grace. No one changes until they get God's grace. Nothing changes until God's grace. In the eyes of the Lord, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. The sequence here is very, very, very important. 
How many of you are in the military and ready, aim, fire is the preferred order. You're like, fire, ready, aim. You gotta get it in order. In salvation, there's something called the order of salvation and it's very important. That God saves you, God changes you, and then you're declared righteous and walk with him If you think that your behavior precedes his salvation, you have something called works theology. If you believe that his salvation precedes the change in your behavior, then you have grace theology. It's very important to get the sequence right, that grace comes first, then change, that God acts first, and then we react, that God initiates and we respond. Most of the time, especially in children's Bibles, this story is mistold. And it is told in this way. There are good people and bad people. Noah was a good guy, so he got a boat and the bad people had to swim, be a good person or take swim lessons. Those are your options. When my kids were little and we got them kids' Bibles, I would get a Sharpie and edit it. This was the first story I always edited. I edited others. My kids would be like, why is my Bible all edited? It's fixed. Okay, so, um, and I would tell them, you're not good and God doesn't look down and see good people and bad people and pick the good people. God is good, we are bad. God looks down and he picks some bad people and he's good to them. Not because they're good, but because he's good. That's the story of Noah. So let me revisit the story. Here's the sequence. Whose evil, outside behavior, inward heart, all the time, no exception, everyone. God says, everyone is evil out there and in here all the time. That would include who? Noah. God's heart was broken. God looked and he fixed his eyes on Noah. He said, I'm gonna love and save that guy. Now, we're, we tend to be arrogant. So we think, why did God pick Noah? Because God's good. Not because Noah's good. The same reason that God picked you, because he's good, not because you're good. Same reason he picked me. See, when I became a Christian, I was 19 in college, sleeping with a pastor's daughter. God didn't look and say, Mark is doing so good. We just, we gotta have him on the team. <laughs> right, like, we, I don't think we can, I don't think that we can reach the nations without that guy. I mean, he's, he's incredibly valuable. <laughs> right, see, you're laughing at me. That's sort of judgy, all right? But it's true for, you're like, yeah, he didn't need you for sure, I know that. But he doesn't need any of us. And the fact that he loves and saves any of us, that's his grace. It says that he found grace or favor, that God saved him by grace, forgave him by grace. This is the precursor of Jesus. He gets the wrath so that we get the grace. And it says that then he was declared righteous and he was seen by God as blameless. But does this mean that he's a great guy? He lives an incredible life. Now he is obedient, he does build an ark, but does he have any flaws? Yeah, after God floods the earth, he gets off the boat and he's like, I really need a drink. It's been a lot. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's no vineyards. I'm gonna plant a vineyard. <laughs> and I'm gonna grow grapes and I'm gonna wait for the grapes to grow. And then I'm gonna put them in a vat and I'm gonna stomp on them. And I'm gonna put them in a bottle after I make bottles and then it's gonna ferment and then I'm gonna drink so much of it that I get drunk and I pass out naked in my tent. Happy hillbilly 4th of July. That's what he does, <laughs> right? This is probably the beginning of NASCAR. I mean, that's where we find ourselves. <laughs> left turn, left turn, left turn, left turn. <laughs> I was like, that was funny until that last one. That was offensive. (laughs) He's not a great guy. He's saved and he's loved. He's better than he was, but he's still got some problems. How many of you? That's the Christian life. I was not looking for God. God was looking for me. I didn't do a lot of good things. God did a good thing. He did change me, but I'm still a work in progress. And some days I'm a disaster. Welcome to Christianity. That's the story of Noah, that's the story of us all. And then it says that he walked with God. And what's amazing is wife and his kids follow him. The point is this for us men, that ultimately we need to tell everybody about Jesus, but lead our family. His wife and his kids follow him for 120 years while he's building the ark. His wife every day, here's your lunch. Hey boys, here's your lunch, what are you guys doing? Well, we're gonna tell everybody that a flood is coming. Honey, you know we live in the desert and it's never rained. Yeah, but it's coming. Honey, you've been saying that for 111 years. 
yeah, but we believe the Lord. Okay. I mean, we, they had a lot of faith and they were mocked for 120 years. So what we see then in conclusion is one faith-filled family. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. Sound familiar? And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. Sound familiar? And all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. God says, I'm starting over. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. Need to make this thing waterproof with a roof. It's gonna rain, son. This is how you make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. That's 1.4 million cubic feet. That is big enough to house 522 modern railroad cars. That is shaped like a modern day battleship. Make a roof for the ark, finish it with a cubit above, set the door of the ark in its side, make it with lower second and third decks. Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. We'll hit the flood next week. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant. That's the first appearance of the word covenant in the Bible. God says, I'm gonna make a relationship with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Just eight people, everyone else drowns. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female so they could reproduce. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to keep you uh, to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this and he did what? All that the Lord commanded. Let me say this friends, you and I need to make it our ambition to do all that the Lord commands. Had he missed one of God's commands, his family would have not been spared. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I've seen you are righteous before me in this generation. The scene is set for the flood. Let me show you what the ark looked like, uh, just to give you some sense of size and scope. And so um, this is an attraction that Christians go to, and you could just compare it to the vehicles in the parking lot, the scope and the size. According to the specifications, this is what it would have looked like and how large it would have been. For 120 years, there's no indication that there was rain in the earth and they lived in the desert. And Noah got up with his sons, preached, everybody made fun of him, and then he would go to work for 120 years to build what God told him to build. And in so far as we could tell, this would be a good replication of what it looked like and it gives us some sense of size and scope. Let me close with this. Genesis isn't just about what happened, but about what always happened. God said he would destroy the earth with water, and he tells us that in the end, he will destroy it by fire. For 120 years, Enoch and then Noah preached. For now some 2000 years, there have been preachers sent forth to tell people that a judgment is coming. And let me say this, most people just ignore that invitation and mock. My encouragement to you would be this, you need Jesus Christ. Time is not going to solve the human problem of sin and death. Evolution is not going to solve the human problem of sin and death. Politics, technology, medical advancements are not going to solve the problem of human sin and death. Only Jesus Christ, the one promised to come through this family line of Eve, only he can take away sin and conquer death. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. In the meantime, you and I want to be like Enoch and also Noah and walk with God. And like Noah, we want to walk with God with our families. And I need you to know that today, Jesus is the greater Noah that as Noah was the head of that family, so Jesus is the head of our family. As Noah was the human head of the Noahic covenant, so Jesus Christ is head of the new covenant. And that ultimately when we come together as a church, this is a bit like an ark. The waters are rising up there, out there. 
And we come in here to be encouraged and to hear from the Lord and to be together as the family of God. Thank you for allowing me the honor of teaching you God's word. I believe that hard words produce soft people and that soft words produce hard people. I believe in our day of self-love, self-image and self-esteem that a lot of people have hard hearts as they did in the days of Noah. I believe when we hear that we are sinners, that we have ruined the world, that Jesus Christ is God and savior. Those may be hard words for us, but they cause us to be soft people so that we can welcome God to give us a new heart. Father, thank you for an opportunity to teach your word today. And as we come to respond, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to take out our old heart and give us a new heart. And God, as we hear that our hearts break your heart, may our hearts break for the things that break your heart. May we love Jesus and hate sin. May we lead our families as Noah did. May we lean into grace as he did. And may we walk with you as Enoch and Elijah did. And may we walk together with our children and our children's children. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you want to be a part of getting more Bible teaching out across the world, visit realfaith.com slash donate. And for more content like this, visit realfaith.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, it's all about Jesus.